You're listening to Divorce Happy Hour. This is Christina Previtt, your host, and we are being joined once again for part two with Allison Williams. And just in case you need reminding, Allison Williams is the founder of the Williams Law Group, located in Short Hills, New Jersey, which focuses on divorce and family law, as well as child abuse and neglect cases. Allison is recognized as a top professional in her field and nationally known as the Difus Diva. Welcome back, Allison. I am so excited to be back, Christina. We had such a great conversation, and I'm ready to pick it up with part two. That's right. And we didn't plan to have a part two, but the conversation clearly was not over when we did the last hour. And you were gracious enough to come back for another hour. So I thank you for that. Yeah, you can just say what you mean, which is that I'm long-winded. No way! (laughs) No way! You know what? The worst thing ever is when, when you have trouble filling up 55 minutes of airtime. <laughs> so that I would much prefer someone who knows how to talk. But this is a lot of good information that I think we're providing to the public. And it's, as I said last time, there's really not a lot of attorneys that I think are proficient in this area. There's dabblers, but I don't think there are a lot of people that really know exactly what they're talking about. And you're one of those people that knows what you're talking about. I think where we left off to was uh, generally had talked about the investigation process. And what I wanted to get into next is, let's say the division comes to your house and they've decided that they're taking your children. What happens at that point? Do they have authority to just say, you know what, this is an unsafe environment. We're taking your kids. So the agency does have the right to remove the children without a court order. That is what we refer to as a Dodd hearing after Senator Dodd, who wrote the the statute that allows for that. And if the children are removed without a court order, they have to go to court within 72 court hours. So that means three business days, essentially. Um, And if they ultimately decide that there is uh, probable cause that was found if a court decides that after they get to court, then the children will remain in whatever placement the agency found. But of course, there also are times when the agency does not simply remove or they're not quite certain that there is enough or they believe there is enough, but they also don't want the children subjected to a back and forth. If the court were to disagree, they will simply petition the court and ask for removal. And so what happens if the judge decides that, and and this, I'm sorry, I've got to back up a little bit. Do they have, like an order to show cause where they have testimony and witnesses and evidence? Do they do that? Well, they are are supposed to. So, Mm, you know, when they file in court, they file every application that initiates a proceeding in a child welfare case is by order to show cause. So that's emergent application. And when they file that application, Depending on the circumstances, you could have a full-blown hearing. And I say depending on the circumstances because in many situations, the evidence is so overwhelming, most lawyers, not myself included, but most lawyers will look at the facts, look at the voluminous nature of the complaint, the length of time the family has been involved with the agency, and decide there's no way that they could put up a real defense just on having gotten the complaint that day or the day before. So instead, they will simply either concede the point or make an oral argument based on what's in the complaint. There is, however, case law that says that 
when you are looking at uh, removing a child, it's so significant of, of an act by a court and by the state of New Jersey, the agency, that you really have to have the most scrupulous adherence to the procedural safeguards. That means swearing in a caseworker. The caseworker has to give a basis to the court as to why the agency, what, what the agency found, why that is problematic, why there is concern for the safety or well-being of a child, and that the reasonable efforts to avoid the removal have been exhausted and ultimately removal is the only way to keep the child safe. So do they also have to do that even if the parent is acknowledging that the removal was appropriate? So, you know, yes and no. I mean, there there has to be a finding by the court that the removal was appropriate. Now, obviously, if a parent consents, and you have two people, two sides, the state and the parent, who say it was appropriate to remove the child, the court has never, I've never had an experience where a court would disagree with that and say, nope, even though mom is saying the child should be out of the home, we're going to put the child back home. But you do have to have, the court does have to have a factual basis in order to make a finding, the same way as the court would have to have one in a restraining order matter or a divorce you can't show up and say, I want the relief that's entitled to me under a statute unless you can prove that you've met the elements of that statute. So normally that means if the parent consents, the caseworker just testifies that they work for the agency, that they came to know the family, that the facts leading to involvement with the family are in the complaint, and that based on what's in the complaint, they feel it's in the safety, in the best interest of the child to promote his safety, that the child be removed and the parent just consents on the record. So in your experience, have you seen circumstances where, I'm sure you've seen circumstances where it was egregious, but have you seen circumstances where it really wasn't? And there was question as to whether it really was appropriate to remove the children. Absolutely. So, you know, what tends to happen is um, I know that the agency gets a very bad rap, Um, I'm certainly not going to be their biggest supporter, but I do recognize that there are times when someone gets information and reacts to what they receive, not necessarily having the best best context and foundation. And that usually is a newer worker, someone fresh out of college with a degree that isn't in social work, that's encountering a situation that they are not culturally attuned to or even familiar with. They're just not used to dealing with poor people people of color, people that don't have uh, the greatest resources, people that may be working so hard that they don't have the cleanliest home, and they react to what they see rather than stopping and saying, is this the standard that says this child is in imminent danger? You have to have imminent danger in order to remove without a court order, and you have to have substantial risk of harm if you're going to remove even with a court order. So there are times where people overreact. Um, The way to avoid that or the the safeguard to avoid that is that the supervisor is supposed to sign off on a removal. It's not just the investigator who comes to the home. But unfortunately, the supervisor doesn't come out to every home when someone gets on the phone and says, I'm recommending removal. Most often, the supervisor is gathering the perceptions of whomever is on the phone, and the investigator says, this is what I found, this is what I heard, this is what I saw, this is what the child disclosed. And so they have to rely on what they're being told. And if the investigator either has a chip on his or her shoulder or is tired or is not familiar with the circumstances that they found or really just has a gut feeling that may be based in bias as opposed to knowledge, then the supervisor doesn't have much choice but to rubber stamp what the investigator has recommended. And then you're off and running. And so, yes, children are inappropriately removed. 
but I have seen courts return a child that's been removed without a court order on the first hearing. And even though it is very rare, I have successfully achieved that on my own on 18 occasions. And I have attorneys on my team that have achieved it as well. So it's not unheard of that a child can go home even once the agency has decided that that child should be removed. I think I've seen it happen often where the uh, agency will come over and say, well, you know, it's better if you just agree to this. And then the parent will sign something. Oh, I, hate I know, right? <laughs> that must be so frustrating. Now, what if, you know, they didn't have counsel, they just did it because some people have this attitude, well, it's, you know, it's a government agency and I have to just do what they say, you know, like like they're the police. And that's not necessarily the case, as we've learned from you. What can you do as the attorney if that happens? Is there some way to undo that consent? So most often, it sounds like what you're talking about is when they will present a safety and protection plan for the family and suggest that the family um, agree to removal, agree that a parent is going to remove themselves from the home or some other type of remedy. And when that happens, if you go to court as the attorney, the strongest argument is rarely that the parent was bullied into accepting or consenting, because even if the parent withdraws their consent, the court still has the same situation that they would have had had the child been removed without consent. Namely, the child is now out of the home, so the court has to not only consider whether it was appropriate that they be taken out of the home, but they also have to consider whether or not it is going to harm the child to place the child back in the home, even though the state did not meet the threshold of imminent danger, but there are serious concerns in the home that could materialize to that point any moment now. So even if the, the, there was kind of a, a jumping the gun, um, courts are loath to send a child back home only to have to remove them again a week, a month, you know, a quarter later when a parent has not gotten their stuff together. So much more often than not, what I recommend to people is when you come in and the agency has jumped the gun and you were bullied into consenting, you really have to be prepared to defend on the merits. You have to say, you know, whether I was right or wrong to consent, this removal is not warranted. Now, yes, I got to agreeing because I was bullied, but even if I wasn't bullied, even if I did the right thing in the moment because um, I was reacting based on the moment, it is not best for the child to remain out of the home. And we have to consider how the child is going to react being taken away from their parent, their home, their friends, their life only to go over to some other location when the, the household really isn't unsafe for that child. So let's say that you, you go to court on the Dodd hearing and the court determines that the child or children shouldn't have been removed and they return them to the home. Is it over at that point or can the division still assert that they should be involved, that there should be services provided? Is it still continue? So, that's also a very factual, dependent, you know, fact-specific situation. Um, I have seen it both ways. I have seen cases, I've successfully litigated cases where um, the agency jumped the gun and either removed the parent, which is essentially considered a removal, even though it's not the child that's been taken from the parent, the parent's been required out of the home. Um, and in that scenario, we went to court, we had a trial. It was a, a allegation of sexual abuse. And we started the trial the day of the removal hearing um, and continued that trial over five days. Unfortunately, it did span the Christmas holiday, so this was a couple years back. My client didn't get to see his children on Christmas, 
But in January, we had our last day. The court found that there was not probable cause for a removal and not only directed that the child be returned, but ordered compensatory time for my client because the court believed this was a machination of his soon-to-be ex-wife and also ordered that the agency terminate its involvement with the family, which is a very draconian uh, order, but it is something that the court has the authority to order. In other situations, and it's much more commonly the case, where we have successfully defended a removal, um, the removal was done in this particular instance. I'll give an example of uh, the child from both parents, because even though dad had a mental health problem and mom acknowledged it, mom had signed to agree that dad was going to be out of the home, she did that really at the hospital at the recommendation of the doctors. The agency just happened to be there and signed off on it. So she believed that when the doctor said, yeah, we're perfectly fine for him to be home now because he's mentally cleared and he's safe to be around the child, mom thought she could rely on that and didn't notify the agency. And she got on the phone when the agency called about something, you know, in the ordinary course of business and told them, yeah, you know, he's home. And the worker said, well, what do you mean he's home? We didn't agree to that. And she said, well, the doctor agreed, so why would you not agree? And the caseworker was incredulous. You know, you violated this agreement that we reached, and we can't trust you now, and this is very serious, and we're going to have to do something about it. And at that point, mom freaked out <laughs> and yeah, understandably uh, took the so. child and fled. And as a result of her fleeing, um, they were apprehended uh, about two days later because uh, mom basically hid out at a relative's house, and they went through the entire family and found her. But uh, as a result of her fleeing, they said, well, her judgment is so impaired, she couldn't possibly safely parent this child, even though there was nothing wrong with her. She violated the agreement about dad not being with the child, and she took off. She's a law, you know, a lawless person and shouldn't have her child. And the court ultimately gave me a very hard time about that, but did ultimately send the child home to mom. However, there were concerns now that um, not so much with mom, but that mom was um, not necessarily as aware of dad's mental health issues as she should be. She wasn't as protective or as um, concerned as she should be because dad's mental health episode was one episode, but it could have been a series of episodes. There was a history. Uh, so they did keep the, the case open. And that's usually the case. If they keep it open post-return of child, that does not mean that, um, that you know, the, they, the, the, the parents are free and clear. It just means that the child is not in imminent danger. Child can still be safely with one parent while the parents are working on other issues. And that's really what the agency required. Yeah, I, I can't. I guess I'm a little jaded. I'm always a little suspicious of DCPNP, and I'm thinking, okay, are they are they going to keep it open because they really just want to ensure that this child is safe and that there aren't going to be any more incidents, or are they just giving them an opportunity to screw up again? <laughs> are they lying in wait? Oh God, you sound like you, <laughs> you sound like so many people I consult. <laughs> I think we're I think we're kind of we're, we're talking we're using the same words but we're not speaking the same language so when the agency becomes involved with a family they can be involved whether they go to court or not they can be involved before court or after court so their involvement is not contingent upon being in court yes and you don't get out of court because a child has been returned because almost invariably the child will have some level of adjustment issues simply by virtue of having been removed from his or her family. 
So more often than not, if a child is removed, the court is going to want to ensure that the child has mental health services uh, if necessary, which oftentimes they are necessary, and that whatever led the division to be involved has been remediated. The fact that you have remediated the imminent danger standard and it's not unsafe for the child to be home in this moment does not mean that there is not and are not ongoing concerns that if these concerns aren't addressed, there could be a situation where this child is ultimately harmed. So perfect example is in substance abuse cases. If someone has no immediate sobriety issue, they had a substance abuse problem, they've gone to rehab or detox, they've gotten the problem under control, and now the child is safe in the care of the parent, that does not mean necessarily that if you don't address the attendant issues that come with substance abuse problems, like mental health problems, relational problems, perhaps there could be a divorce as a result of substance abuse, there could be domestic violence in the relationship that oftentimes attended uses of substances. You don't necessarily just leave those other issues out there and say, well, the problem that led to removal was substance abuse, so we'll just leave all this other stuff out there because the child is now home. No, the court says, and the law says, the agency has the right to intervene before the harm materializes. So the fact that we solve one problem doesn't mean that all others go away. So it's often the case that the agency is still involved. Are there times when the agency is just being predatory, um, you know, hostile, retaliatory against the family because they believe the problem is bigger than the court believes it to be or than that they were able to prove it to be? Absolutely. We have absolutely seen caseworkers run amok and and waste their time and energy on a family. Um, and sometimes you can sense that relatively easy, and sometimes it kind of comes out from things that are written in the record. But much more often than not, once you get the child home after the case has started, it is a much harder burden for the agency to continue to stick around and to get ongoing relief from the parents other than generally getting evaluations done and making sure that they're compliant with whatever services the court ordered. So is it fair to say that essentially the only time the um, agency really needs to initiate a court action is if the family isn't complying with, I guess, services or whatever it is the agency thinks they should be doing? Is that fair to say? Or I guess if they have to remove the children? Well, so it, those, are, those are the most common reasons why the agency will go to court. But the agency can also go to court to compel um, an investigation. So sometimes they don't know the nature of the problem because a parent is so afraid or so um, untrusting of the agency that they refuse them all access. So there are certain things, I think we talked about this a little bit last time, that they have to do when they come out to a home to investigate. And if they're not allowed into the home or if they're not allowed to see the child and the child is not of an age where the child's going to be at school, then they will have to get a court order to compel the parent to cooperate. There's also situations where the concern is there, but they can't corroborate the concern without some form of more invasive access to the parent. So, for instance, a parent who has had an on-again, off-again substance abuse problem, the child is finally home and someone reports that the parent is using again, we may not be able to rule that out by a urine screen because the time we find out about it may have you know, been so long ago that it's out of their system, but a hair follicle test might demonstrate that it has been in your system for the past 90 days, the past 180 days, depending on the test. So we need to get a court order for that. So that's another time when they will go to court. 
And then there finally is um, a circumstance under Title 30, which is one of the two primary child abuse statutes. There's Title 9 and Title 30. Under Title 30, the agency can go to court where there is what we would refer to as, I'm not going to use the exact language out of the statute, but basically there's a need for services that have to be compelled by court order, not necessarily even because the parents are refusing, but because if they are not court-ordered, certain other related agencies will not provide those services free of charge. So if a parent has a child who is mentally or emotionally disturbed, um, if they need to have an in-home professional to work with a child, a mentor, a, uh, a guide for the child, if the child is physically uh, or mentally emotionally impaired, um, then you have a situation where a parent may not be able to handle the child. If the child is a risk to the parents and or other children in the home, there may be a need to have um, some psychiatric uh, services available, and it's easier to get a bed if the agency is involved than if you as a private citizen simply say, my child is psychiatrically impaired. So there are times when the agency will have to go to court to get an order against the parents, and it really is for the benefit of the child more so than against the parents, but most often it's for removal and for forcing a parent to cooperate with getting services in place. So if some if there's a Title 30 action, is there, I don't really know the difference, the nuances between Title 9 and Title 30, would that require still require a fact-finding to get the child services? So technically the, the, the requirement for a fact-finding actually is specifically codified in Title IX, and it is to determine whether or not a child has been abused or neglected. Under Title 30, the right to a hearing really attends for the fact that any time that a cause of action is pled in court, any type of case, whether it's a family law case, a civil case, a criminal case, someone has to file a complaint in court, and then that person who filed, the plaintiff, has to prove the allegations that they pled in their complaint in order to have the court order relief. Now, in child abuse cases and in matrimonial cases, we are used to being able to petition for relief before the trial happens, before the end of the case. So a lot of times we think, great, as soon as I file a complaint, I'm entitled to. But the reality is, anytime you file a complaint alleging anything, you have a responsibility to prove what you have alleged in order for the court to give you an ultimate judgment of the relief that you're seeking. So in Title 30, that means that you have to have your trial on the issue before the court could make a finding either of one prong of Title 30, which deals with termination of parental rights, that's further down the line and certainly not uh, applicable to most child abuse cases, but you know, simply saying that the family needs services, the, the agency has to prove that. The nuance with Title 30, though, that's really interesting is that um, there is no Title 30 evidence statute. So when people, when agencies file under Title 9 and they are seeking, um, they're seeking to compel a parent to have services or granting uh, some relief regarding the child, that is almost invariably uh, done so that they can um, proceed right away. And if they don't file under Title IX, they technically don't have a right to proceed right away because they haven't yet had their trial. And the standard under Title 30 is clear and convincing evidence. So if you are seeking relief and you don't have all of those liberal entitlements to evidence, 
hearsay coming in and things like that under Title IX, and the agency just filed under Title 30, they have a much higher standard, even though it is very common that courts will not recognize that because Title IX and Title 30 are often pled together. So you kind of get a loosening of the, the restrictions and the rules of evidence when you're not entitled to it. So that happens a lot when they file under Title 30, which is the reason why they almost invariably file under Title IX as well as Title 30 so that they can cover their bases. Are there ever instances where a parent has a really unruly child, like someone they just can't handle, maybe has substance abuse problem or serious behavioral problems, where they actually call the division themselves to get some kind of services? Is that something that they could do under Title 30? So a parent has the right to call the agency, but the standard for calling the agency really is to report that you have reason to believe that a child may be abused or neglected. So what tends to happen when a parent calls the agency is, you know, they're going to come out and investigate a claim of child abuse, and if you aren't claiming that you abused your child or that someone in the home abused your child, then they don't have the authority to become involved. They will typically refer you out to CMO or some other um, public health agency to help you with the issue. Now, sometimes it is that a parent will call and allege that one child is putting another child at risk, and that's a common basis for the agency to become involved if you have, say, a, a juvenile delinquent or much more often a child that has mental health impairments, they will you know, not be able to control themselves, control their body. Uh, they may be sexually acting out against a sibling, and to keep that sibling safe, the parent will call, and in those instances, the agency may become involved. But almost invariably, those are not the best situations for the parents because once you call the agency, you can't call them off. Yeah, <laughs> so you can't say, never you mind. You can say, yeah, okay, well, I want your help, but if you're not going to give me what I'm asking for, I'll just uninvite you, and it doesn't work that way. Yeah. So I'm always very um, reticent to ever advise a client to reach out to the agency for help. There are times where you must report, but if you're not in a situation where you must report and you have an issue with one child that you're trying to get help for, there are lots of other avenues to get help than calling the agency and using what is much more often than not the investigatory arm of the agency as opposed to just the resources and services side. Now, at some point, the um, agency has to reach some conclusion about their investigation, right? I don't remember what they are. It used to be unsubstantiated. I think they've changed them since I was handling some of these cases. What are those categories, and at what point do they determine those? Okay. So from the time that they investigate, they are supposed to disposition the investigation with a finding in 60 days. And in terms of what the findings are, the only two that have remained the same over um, the past several decades is substantiated and unfounded. So we'll start there, and then I'll talk to you about the other two that are in between substantiated and unfounded. So substantiated abuse is essentially a finding that the child has been abused or neglected. And once upon a time, that was it. You had a finding, uh, and then there were consequences that came with the finding. Now, substantiation is the highest level, uh, and that comes with consequences like being listed on the Child Abuse Central Registry, which is a name database of every person who's ever been found to have abused or neglected a child. And then there is one step below the substantiated finding, and we refer to that as established. So if a finding is established, 
there's essentially what we refer to as mitigating factors. Now, this kind of sounds a little like what we do in criminal court when we're sentencing people. We have aggravating and mitigating factors, but this is not criminal. This is just referred to in that same way. There's something about whatever happens that mitigates that this should be substantiated and that the person should be listed on the registry. So that might include that this is isolated, um, that even though it rose to the level of child abuse, we don't believe it's going to recur in the future. This is a first-time offender. There was a level of remorse. They, the parent has taken action immediately to address the problem and to ensure that the problem doesn't resurface, et cetera. So that's substantiated and established. In the area of not having a finding of child abuse, you have two options. Best case scenario is what has always existed, existed in New Jersey, and that is unfounded. So if child abuse is unfounded, that means they investigated and there is either no evidence to support that the child was abused or neglected, or there is no evidence to support that the abuse or neglect occurred at the hands of the investigated party. Now, unfounded comes with the greatest benefit that after you have gotten your unfounded claim, if nothing else happens over a period of three years, the agency will expunge the record of that investigation and no information will be kept by the agency other than that a claim was investigated, a call was made to the agency, and the outcome was unfounded. So any data that they gained in the meantime, if they got a child's medical records or a child's mental health records to investigate a claim of child abuse, all that information is later destroyed. Now, if the claim is not unfounded, one step up from unfounded, which is not as good, is referred to as not established. And not established means while it is not child abuse, we don't consider it to be a non-issue. So there is, quote, some evidence that supports that the child was harmed or placed at risk of harm. Now, the interesting thing about the not established category is that my senior associate, Victoria Miranda, just argued before the New Jersey Supreme Court about the constitutionality of having a finding that someone did something that harmed a child, even though we're not going to call it child abuse, and not having any form of due process associated with the not established finding. So right now, as the law stands right now, the issue has already been argued. It's pending before the Supreme Court, but hasn't been decided yet. Right now, if you are investigated for child abuse and the agency says it is not established, that means that you will have a letter sent to you in the mail telling you you did something that harmed your child or placed your child at risk, but they don't tell you what it is. They don't tell you... Um, when it occurred, they don't tell you what to do to remediate the problem, and you are left to go to the appellate division to appeal that, means, meaning you get to argue on paper about what was said about you. You don't get to contest what was said, and you don't get to call witnesses and cross-examine, and all those things that our adversarial system says is needed in order to assert and find the truth. So the question becomes, is that really fair? We argued that it wasn't. We actually had four other parties on our side with that. The State Bar Association of New Jersey was on our side. The Office of Parental Representation of New Jersey was on our side. Legal Services of New Jersey and the American Civil Liberties Union. So we're very hopeful that that law will be declared unconstitutional and will go away. But for now, those are the four findings. Unfounded, not established, established, and substantiated. So if you're not established, it's not expunged after three years? Correct. 
Okay. It's, yeah, it's kind of weird. It's, it's not like expunged a, ever. It's I mean, like and a that's stain. the worst part of it, which is <laughs> no matter what happens ever, um, 15 years, 20 years, 40 years, 60 years, doesn't matter, you will forever have uh, your private confidential information about you and your child and your family kept in a database by the state of New Jersey. Now, of course, for most people, that really is inconsequential because uh, the outcome of having a not established finding is not going to revisit, be revisited upon them in the future. If whatever happened with a child doesn't resurface, uh, then you know the agency is never involved again, no calls are placed, and you go on about your life. But for many people who want to work as teachers or work in daycare or become uh, foster parents, this information being housed by the agency that's going to be in some way involved in assessing them is going to have an adverse impact on them. And if it's an established finding, you also, uh, you're not going to be on the registry, but that information is also maintained. So that's even worse that you don't have, you know, in, in an established finding, you have a right to a trial. You get that in the Office of Administrative Law, but you still don't have any form of redress to have this finding ever go away. You can expunge things like, um, Megan's law findings. You know, so if someone is a convicted sex offender, depending on the nature of the claim uh, of the conviction and the number of years that passed, 20 years, I believe, is eligibility for some tiers to be expunged um, from the Megan's registry. You don't have that as um, a parent accused of child abuse. So if I leave my child in the backseat of the car to run into the store and buy milk and someone calls that child abuse, and I don't get that successfully overturned on an administrative appeal, that will be in the annals of the state of New Jersey that I abused or neglected my child into perpetuity. So that stops me from being a foster parent to my grandchild. If, God forbid, my child ever gets in trouble, that stops me from certain forms of employment. It stops me from uh, successfully asserting that there's no problem with me if someone were ever to place another call on me about my child. So there are very serious ramifications to these administrative findings, and we're very hopeful that the Supreme Court will reverse the uh, the current status of the law on that topic. That is exciting. I'll be looking out for that. Um, and congratulations on that, for, by the way. That's no small accomplishment. But these seem rather arbitrary. I mean, it's arbitrary. <laughs> they they do. Okay, well, if you did this, we're going to put you in this category. And if you did that, we're going to put you in this category. But if you did this, but not that, we're going to put you over here. I don't know. I mean, I guess to me, to someone who doesn't do this kind of work, so I certainly don't know it the way that you do it. It just, it doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense. Well, you know, there are times when the findings are arbitrary. Uh, they are supposed to, the agency is supposed to follow the field operations manual, which is their governing document for how they are to conduct investigations and all of the components of how the investigations are supposed to be conducted and what's to be considered are, are, are codified in the administrative code, New Jersey administrative code. So, the so problem, however, is that it's misapplied. You know, so yeah. some counties, um, smoking pot means they're yeah. going to get a smack on the wrist, a turn of the head, and a, hey, don't do this again. Other counties, you know, you're smoking pot, that's a gateway drug, your kid's going to be removed, and you have to go to substance abuse treatment. So, you know, the law is only as good as the humans that are acting upon it, and sadly, those humans vary from county to county based on their experiences. Yeah. So at some point, you, I think you said 60 days from initiating the investigation, the agency has to make a determination. 
is that the same regardless of whether there's been a dot hearing or not, you know, whether there's been a removal, whether there's been a complaint that's been filed? Yeah. So every time they have to do that. The administrative process is completely separate from court. And that's probably the most confusing thing for most people, including lawyers, to understand. So if, if as soon as a call goes into the agency, you get that 800 number, one eight seven seven nj abuse You call that number, make a report. There's a call that goes into Trenton. It's referred to your local office, wherever you reside, and then it's investigated. Within 60 days of that phone call, there is supposed to be an outcome that says this is either unfounded, not established, established, or substantiated. Separate and apart from that is that once they come out to the home, they have to assess the home for imminent risk, in which case they can remove a child without a court order, substantial risk, in which case they can petition the court to ask that there's a finding of child abuse and that the child be returned or removed, uh, and then, or, or if not, simply any risk that they can mitigate by virtue of asking the family to cooperate with services. If they find imminent risk or substantial risk, court action will ensue. So they could come to your home and say, I see imminent risk, I'm taking this child now, and the court could ultimately disagree with that finding. However, since imminent risk is the highest burden, there could be a situation where a court says there is an imminent risk, this child needs to go home. However, the behavior was a substantial risk of harm to a child. So once upon a time, the very common uh, arrangement or situation where this would occur would be children in the backseat of a car. Right. The agency is not likely to find that there is imminent risk of harm because a parent left a child in the backseat of the car to go into the grocery store for some period of time. But let's say that uh, the parent uh, was a single parent, left the child, and when they came back out to the car, the police had taken the child from the car because they believed that the child had been abandoned and there was something wrong with the child. In that scenario, someone might wait by the car, tell the parent, this child has been taken to wherever, but we didn't know if you were coming back or not, so we decided to post an officer here just in case, but the child is now down at the police station, and we're going to have the child checked by the hospital. In that scenario, the agency would have to come and take custody of that child, so the child is not just being held at the police station. The child is going to be put into a um, a short-term placement. But the child could be returned right away, right? Because yeah. the agency could say, yeah, the child is not in any danger. We now know that the child has not been abandoned, but they did a removal. <laughs> and once they do a removal, um, they might go into court and say, judge, we, we, we no longer have concerns. We're withdrawing our complaint. Uh, but they do have to file to get a court order that, you know, authorizes them to return the child or, you know, accept their consent to return the child. And 60 days later, yes. 60 days from the date that the agency got involved, they have to give you a letter saying what the outcome is. So court is completely separate from uh, investigations. You have investigations where they say no harm, no foul, but they still say there is imminent risk because the problem could materialize into something in the future. You have other situations where they say, yep, we've removed the child, but our, our indication from the full investigation says the child is safe now. And we don't believe this was child abuse. Child goes home, even though you have a finding down the road. You have to have a finding regardless. So you're really, it's almost like you're litigating two separate things. Cause you could... It can be. Now, if, you, if, if the investigation happens to result in an established or a substantiated finding and you are in court, you get to litigate in court 
because you have to not only litigate whether or not the child should be returned to you at some point when the problem's been resolved, but you have to litigate whether or not the finding of child abuse and neglect was appropriate by the agency to have warranted their involvement in the first place. So this really demonstrates why you need to have an attorney who is very knowledgeable about these procedures, because the one that isn't could be making mistakes that they're not even aware of. Yeah, and you know, and it's it's uh, it's difficult to explain to people. I mean, I think a lot of times people hear a lawyer say, "Well, so you really need to have a lawyer for this." And there are times where you know, there are certain times where I say, based on whatever's going on, you don't need a lawyer. You know, if you get a notice from the probation department that says we're going to upwardly modify your child support by, you know, X percent because uh, it's been three years since you last calculated child support and you disagree with that, and they tell you to write a letter, you can just write a letter. You don't have to hire a lawyer for that in the moment. You may need to hire a lawyer, right, because you may have some complex issues going on with your finances, but you don't absolutely have to hire a lawyer to deal with that particular issue. With child abuse and neglect, much more often than not, I see that well-intentioned, smart, capable, dynamic family law attorneys do people such a disservice by telling them, quote, just cooperate with the agency and give them what they want and they'll go away. You're not one of, quote, those people over there. You're a good person. You just have XYZ problems. So just cooperate with them and this problem will be resolved. And I have seen any number of disaster stories where that happens. So I'll give you a perfect example. I represented a woman. We were actually able to successfully overturn a not established finding at the appellate division, so it went down to unfounded, which is very rare. I think there are only five cases in the state of New Jersey where that happened. We have three of them. And I remember very distinctly when I got the call that this person had been accused of child abuse by the agency. It was at the very beginning of her divorce case. And her divorce case started with mom and dad living in mom's premarital home, two kids. Mom and dad were both actively involved, but mom was probably a little bit more involved than dad, but both relatively good parents. And when mom and dad got into an argument, next thing you know, dad tells the, you know, tells the hospital that mom stabbed him. She stabbed him in self-defense and she stabbed him in the arm, but the relatively superficial wound somehow became a big gaping hole, according to dad. So he tells the hospital that mom stabbed him in anger. So, of course, that has to get reported. Mom is arrested. Mom is removed from her own premarital home. And when we ultimately get mom out of jail and get her back to her home, which is premarital, and dad is to move out, by that time, the agency had gotten involved. Mom was unavailable, so dad got the kids. And the agency investigated the claim by asking dad what happened. (laughs) So, of course, you've got two litigants that were on the verge of a divorce. Dad said what he needed to say to get what he wanted. And since the agency saw more injury on dad in their perception than mom. Mom had um, scratches across her face from where dad had taken coat hangers and thrown them in her face. Mom had a huge bruise on the back of her arm from where dad grabbed her right before she stabbed him to get away. They disregarded those injuries and said, well, you know, dad has been stabbed, so mom is the aggressor. Mom should have no more than one hour of supervised visitation every week with this four-year-old and two-year-old child, and we're off and running. And, of course, the problem with that is once you establish a status quo where the children have to move with their parent out of the state, not out of the state, out of the county, 
because uh, dad didn't have a home in the county. He had relatives out of county. And mom was only allowed to see the children very sporadically based on who was able to supervise. And the agency didn't get around to you know, clearing people for supervision for some time. Mom and her children were not ultimately reunited into a regular parenting schedule for the better part of a year. I got involved really to appeal the agency finding, but I ultimately went to court to argue about the issues involving the agency in the court proceeding and in the divorce action. And the court granted my request to have mom be unsupervised and to have a normalized parenting schedule, but she had a parenting schedule. And, you know, she divorced in, I won't say the county, but in that county, I am reasonably certain that if dad and mom had separated, dad would have been required to get a home in that county. Nobody would expect that he'd pick the children up and move them halfway down the state to another county. But that's what ultimately happened because that's what he had available to him, and the agency's attitude was, we'll call mom the aggressor. And so all of that melee, the lack of due process, started because these parties both got a restraining order against each other when they had their fight. Mom's attorney advised her, you should go and just consent to withdraw. Each party's going to withdraw their restraining order, and you're going to cooperate with the agency. And it sounded like good advice at the time, right? It sounded like, Ugh. well, you know, these people have intervened, and, you know, they've accused me of stabbing my husband. I couldn't possibly do anything that would not cooperate with them. They're a state agency. I have to cooperate. And I told her now that by virtue of cooperating, you have a consent order that obligates you to do something you have absolutely no obligation to do. You could absolutely have gone to court if they had taken you to court and say, I don't agree with what they're asking for. And the court would have to investigate or at least discern is what they're asking for appropriate in the best interest of the child. If they're asking for something, you get your own expert that could counter what they're asking for. But because she just said, I'll agree and had an order that now obligated her to agree anything that they asked for, she was required to do. And that then kept her away from her children from the better part of a year, so that now, in 2019, we wrapped up the divorce trial. The divorce trial happened four years after the actual divorce. So parties filed for divorce in 2013. Um, parties actually get divorced in 2014, and by that time, a custody evaluation is underway. But since mom didn't have much access to the children because of the agency. There wasn't much to evaluate, so we had to wait until she got normalized parenting. And then we had an evaluation, and then we had to have a new evaluation by the time the evaluation got done because so many facts had changed and so on and so forth. Now we are 2017 to 2019 trying a divorce case, ex post the divorce. And in 2020, my client who started her divorce action in 2013 still does not have a judgment from the court as to who is the appropriate custodial parent of these children who have now basically grown up without having a determination as to who should be the appropriate custodial parent. It's the most absurd thing that, that I've incredible. ever seen happen in the court system, ever. And at what point did your firm get involved in the case? So we got involved, I guess it was about August of 2013. So essentially this incident happened in the early part of 2013. Like I want to say February, March-ish. And by June, the 60 days had passed, the agency sent her a letter, and she filed to appeal. She wrote, the she wrote a letter to the administrative court saying, I disagree with this finding, I want to appeal. Soon after that, her divorce attorney contacted me and said, um, we, have, we have the agency involved in this divorce, and we want them to go away, and we don't know how, help us. 
And so a lot of things had to be done. I had to first appeal the finding. The very first finding they made against her was that it was substantiated abuse. Um, I then wrote a letter explaining why that was absurd, and then they changed the finding to not established. They changed it on a then letter? We had to a- <laughs> they changed Pardon me? it with a letter? Yeah, with a letter. Wow. I, I write nasty letters. What can I say? <laughs> so, so my letter got, got them to say it should be not established. And then we had to appeal to the appellate division. And while that appeal was pending, um, now all of this, by the way, couldn't really start. This process of appellate process couldn't start while my client had um, what's referred to as PTI. So if you are accused of a crime and you go into what's referred to as pretrial intervention, that is technically still an open court case. And while you have an open court case, you cannot pursue your administrative appeal arising out of the same facts. So if you have PTI pending, your administrative appeal has to be delayed. So I involved myself to you know, let the agency know that we were going to be appealing the administrative finding. We got the finding changed, but we couldn't formally appeal that finding until we actually um, got her out of PTI. And that happened in about a year. But in the meantime, I also became involved in the court process to educate the agency behind the scenes that their requests of her were absurd and that I was going to direct her not to comply anymore. I was going to file file a motion to vacate the order that she cooperate with them. But rather than do that, I was going to try to play nicely with them to see if they would agree to certain changes that she wanted, which they did, to their fairness. Um, And then from there, it was going into family court to ask that the trial court alleviate my client of the onerous responsibility to comply with this uh, poorly chosen consent order that she cooperate with certain things. And before we got to a hearing on that, the court called us in chambers and said, what are we doing here? I don't see anything that would support mom being supervised. And ultimately, uh, we were able to get you know the supervision lifted without having a hearing. So there was a lot that was involved. Sometimes we're in, involved behind the scenes to advocate for the parent. Sometimes we're involved with the administrative court. Sometimes we're involved with the superior court. And sometimes it's all of them in a hodgepodge to ultimately get the, the client access to the children, which is what my client was most concerned with at that time. Yes, well, this is certainly an example of someone that needed an attorney. So we have about five minutes left, and I did want to spend at least a couple minutes talking about what happens when the case converts to a termination of parental rights matter. What do you have to do to have your parental rights terminated? I, I would imagine it has to be pretty bad. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that. Um, first, of, the way that you referred to it, like when the case converts to termination of parental rights, I should say this. There has to be a separate complaint to uh, for the agency to seek termination of parental rights. So it's not like you're having an abuse and neglect proceeding and then poof, it becomes a termination of parental rights case. So... Abuse and neglect proceedings that involve a removal um, have certain requirements, including that within 12 months you are supposed to have a permanency hearing where the agency is to propose a plan for what should happen with the child. And they can either propose reunification with the parent or termination of parental rights followed by adoption or kinship legal guardianship, which is its own multifaceted, almost termination type of arrangement where a relative gets, you know, full-time uh, guardianship of the child, except the parent still has the right to uh, parental parenting time, and they still have the obligation to pay child support. 
And then if not that, then maybe some delay in any of these particular plans for some period of time based on what the agency has going on at that time. If a child is in placement, meaning in foster care, for 15 out of 22 consecutive months, then the agency is required by law to file for termination of parental rights. And there are very limited exceptions. Sometimes they will seek an exception, but more often than not, they will simply file. Once they have filed, the case is more onerous. Obviously, it has a much more draconian outcome if, they lose, if, the, if the parent loses. But what they have to basically prove is that um, the parent harmed the child in some way, is unable or unwilling to remediate the harm, that the agency made reasonable efforts to provide services to the parent in order to address the harm, and those efforts have been unsuccessful, and that under prong four, that terminating parental rights would do more harm, would not do more harm than good. So under the prong four, that's where we typically look at things like alternates, alternative arrangements to termination of parental rights, like placing the child with a relative who could be a full-time guardian or uh, some other form of long-term placement for the child. Long-term foster care has now been expressly disapproved by our Supreme Court, so we don't look for long-term foster care anymore, but you can have a long-term arrangement where a child is in psychiatric care or a child is um, with a relative that can't seek guardianship for, for certain reasons. So that's what's required. Now, that's the legal standard. The, the real of it is that essentially termination typically happens when either something very egregious has happened, like a child has died um, and other children are in the home or care of that parent, uh, a child has been severely injured, um, aggravating circumstances is what it's referred to as, and if that happens, then the agency can move right from filing to seeking to avoid reasonable efforts. Uh, and go straight to seeking termination. Those are very, very rare. Much more often, it is the usual course that a parent has many chances in family court when they're accused of abuse or neglect. And if they are not able to be reunified with the child after some reasonable period of time, and I say reasonable, obviously most parents don't call it reasonable, but after some lengthy period of time, um, if that reunification can't happen, that's when we ultimately will have the agency file. Now, if you have your rights terminated as to one child, does that have any bearing on your other children? So, yes, um, parenting rights are considered to be individual. So you can have your rights terminated as to one child and not all children. Now, this is not common because the abuse and neglect statute says that prima facie um, evidence of harm to one child can be used to establish harm to others. And so usually if you're abusing one child in the home, um, we're most courts are not going to say that was specific to that one child and there was no effect on the other children, so the other kids are fine. Usually it's a package deal. A child has been harmed and the other children were placed at substantial risk of harm because of either being in the home, witnessing, or the ancillary effects of the child abuse as the one child. As for termination of parental rights, there is actually a provision in Title 30 that says that once you have had an un an involuntary termination of parental rights as to one child, that then relieves the uh, agency of having to perform an investigation. They can simply go right to an emergency removal if there are subsequent children that become known to the agency. And I have seen that happen where someone will have their rights terminated as to one child, and then subsequently 
that parent will have another child. If the agency becomes aware of that, they have the right to remove that child without any question. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that there will be a termination of parental rights as to that subsequent child, but they have a right to remove without a court order, and the presumption would be that the child would remain in placement until the parent can prove that they have no, no existing problem that led to the first termination. That's incredible. It's like your license to have children has been taken away. And with that, we are at the end of our show. Thank you so much, Allison, for all of this incredible information. And remind us again, if somebody needs your services, how they can find you. Sure. Thank you again, Christina, for having me. It's been it's been fun. I love talking about this stuff, even though I know it's an awful topic. Yeah. Uh, but parents need to know. And if they need help with these issues, they can find us at the 